Okay, just, you know, wanted you to have a sense of um, the range of poetry. Um, so let's look at Birch's, which is on, they, they think it's 1233. It's actually 1223. But in the way they numbered the pages of the Norton, you'll have to go to page 1233. Um, and so it's Frost talking about nature, which is what he does, uh, from his book, North of Boston. Um, he liked being a poet who lived on a farm in New Hampshire, north of Boston. Um, and again, part of the point of this is to think of it as um, a revision, to use Harold Bloom's word, um, of the Intimations Ode. That is what Wordsworth is talking about in the Intimations Ode is what um, Frost is also talking about, but Frost thinks that he's getting to the heart of what Wordsworth was trying to say, or at least wants to think that he's getting to the heart of what Wordsworth is trying to say. I'm not saying that this is a particularly um, close revision of the Intimations Ode. Um, this is partly a kind of uh, demonstration demonstrations is the wrong word, um, kind of um, example of the way pretty much every poem after the Intimations Ode can be thought of as someone trying to get right what they think Wordsworth doesn't quite get right in the Intimations Ode. Um, that's a way of saying the Intimations Ode is central. It's not a way of saying, oh yes, everyone is always going around looking at their feet as they walk down the streets or through the paths in the woods and thinking Wordsworth, Wordsworth, Wordsworth. They're not. But that what Wordsworth did to people's ideas of what poetry could be um, is something that's best encapsulated in the Intimations Ode. And um, our sense of orient orienting poetry towards the Intimations Ode is one that will give you a whole lot of insight into later poetry. Um, not the only insight that there is, but a lot of insight. Any of the poems that, any of the post-Wordsworthian poems that we've done already from um, Bishop's Casabianca, um, Hemans's as well, um, which is only slightly later than Wordsworth. She knew Wordsworth. Um, Bishop's Casabianca, um, Auden, uh, whoever, any of those poems could in one way or another be fruitfully compared to the Intimations Ode. Um, even this be the verse. So here he's describing what he sees in nature. When I see Birch's bend to let, well, I'm, I'm going to read it because we're going to go over it fairly quickly just also as a kind of foreground, not background, but a foreground for the Intimations Ode. Um, so that we can see what the foreground is and then get more deeply into the picture and into the background. When I see birches bend to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boys have been swinging them. Just stop right there. As an image, um, it's... <laughs> yes. No, we're really going fast. Um, as an image... Um, just turn that into a meaningful metaphor. Why the birches bent left and right across the line of lines of straighter, darker trees. That's also a foregrounding image, isn't it? If it's across the line of straighter, darker trees, the birches are in the foreground. 
um, and behind them is a background of straighter, darker trees. What word matters most? In darker, darker as in what? Do you guys know Strindberg and helium? So, darker helium. Darker. If you don't know it, I'm going to sound really weird. Um, do people know who Strindberg is, <coughs> the the great Norwegian playwright? Um, he's a he's a very grim great Norwegian playwright. Um, he is the grimmest of the great playwrights and the greatest of the grim playwrights. And um, so there's a really good set of YouTubes. I think they're now on Comedy Central. Um, they used to be just playing on YouTube called Strindberg and Helium. And Strindberg is. Do you want to describe them, Maya? You're the only one who knows. No one else knows them. Go ahead and describe um, them. See, this is so how we're going to zip through this poem. The guy just like says really. They're, they're like cartoons, and some of them are like at the beach, and he's wearing like Victorian beachwear. Um, and he says like really depressing things, and then Helium says the same things, except in a really high voice. In a helium affected really voice. Fun. Helium is a balloon. Um, so Strindberg is a picture of August Strindberg, this incredibly grim, depressing playwright. But he has this balloon friend, Helium. And so he will say things like, and then I saw a rusty nail, helium. Do you understand what I am saying? Rusty at a nail, sharp as is my sorrow, rusty as is my soul. And then helium will say, sorrow. Um, and it's, it's, they're great. Uh, they're, they're great at any age. You can return to them all your life, and you will find them great. Um, so yes, darker. Darker. Um, darker is the word of the darker trees. Um, straighter, darker trees, why straighter? More conventional? More, okay, um, more conventional, yeah. Um, also more successfully conventional, maybe you could say. That is those that grew up straight. Um, this is a poem about growing up. We don't know that yet, um, but we're about to find that out from the third line. Um, so when I see birches bend to left and right across the lines of straighter, darker trees, I like to think some boys been swinging them. But, and the word but is a word to pay attention to in poems. Um, we will see a but in the intimations ode. Um, and we'll see several. Um, there is uh, John Ashbery, the contemporary poet. He's now um, 85 and probably the greatest living poet in English. Um, wrote a series of very short poems, <coughs> one-line poems, um, where the poem is a title plus a line. And one of those poems is, the title is, I had thought things were going along pretty well. That's the title. And the entire poem is, but I was mistaken. Um, so what's crucial there is the word but. Um, so, but swinging doesn't bend them down to stay as ice storms do. So he um, sees all these bent birches, and he likes to think some boy's been swinging them, but he knows that's not true. Um, it's not true because if a boy had swung them, what would happen to the birches? They would have sprung back up. Um, but ice storms, which hold them down, keep them down. OK, ice storms, quick, metaphor for? Okay, good. That's fine. Um, you can, your answers can almost always be um, troubles of life, fear of death, or coming of sexuality. Old age. Old age, yeah. 
So basically the answer is the, your, your first approximation for metaphors is old age or death or sex. And after that you can refine. Um, but this always will give you a way in. In this case, yeah, old age, troubles of life, being bent, um, stooping, um, because that's what, that's um, permanent. What boys do is play. Um, what happens to adults is that that play becomes real. Um, too soon your soul shall have her earthly freight and custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost and deep almost as life. That is a quotation from What could it be? It's not this be the verse. So what else could it be? Okay. Yeah, good. So what do you think, what, what do you think will happen if your name is Robert Frost and you're reading Wordsworth and Wordsworth says, too soon your soul shall have her earthly freight and custom lie upon thee with a weight heavy as frost and deep almost as life. Do you think you'll notice that? Yeah. And do you think that maybe the image that you will um, redo that as is that um, instead of heavy as frost, it will be the ice storm that will um, be heavy and bend down um, the things that are trying to spring up in a living manner. Um, you'll see also that, um, or you'll recall, I'm sure, the tree in the Intimations Ode. Um, the more you compare, the more you'll see that's worth comparing. Let me, uh, I'm going to give you an image from George Eliot. It's an image that's actually going to return um, in this course. Or do any of you cast the I Ching, or have you ever? Or do tarot or anything like that? I've done tarot. Um, what do you think of it? Um, it's fun. Yeah, do you, you, do you think it's insightful ever? Yeah, well, the, the idea behind the I Ching and the idea behind tarot, if you're not um, actually mystical, is that being asked to consider something random as true will always yield insight, like with Rorschach blots. Um, it's just ink. But if you look at it and you think it's meaningful, um, you can then wonder about how that meaning applies to your own life. And what that will always do is give you a different perspective on things. So there's an image in George Eliot's Middlemarch. Has anyone read it? Um, has anyone read any George Eliot? Yeah. What? It was just excerpts of Middlemarch. Excerpts of Middlemarch, yeah, I think. Yeah, they were on that lit AP, actually. Oh, okay, so. Yeah. 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 So it's a very small percentage of Middlemarch, yeah. seeing as how Middlemarch is 1,200 pages yeah. long. The AP is only a couple of pages. Right, it was short. Actually, my lit AP had um, the first chapter of Henry James's What Maisie Knew on it, which is just incredibly amazing. And, um, and it made me want to read Henry James, which I then did. So the APs can do that. That's a good thing about them. Um, so in Middlemarch, Eliot, the narrator, says, um, a friend of mine has shown me this really interesting experiment. Um, take your um, ordinary or regular cheap servant's mirror, um, the kind the point is it's the kind that's made out of polished steel rather than glass. Um, glass mirrors, the universality of glass mirrors is really 20th century. And um, a glass mirror with, with um, silver backing or quicksilver backing, mercury backing, 
Um, that was an incredible luxury item until the 20th, until uh, mass production in the 20th century. Um, people had mirrors. Mirrors go all the way back to ancient times, but what they are is polished metal. Um, glass mirrors are a new and um, amazing thing. If you've been to Versailles, the Hall of Mirrors is partly so spectacular because no one had seen anything like that before. It's like the hall of 25-foot flat-screen TVs is how it struck them when they got there, except not as vulgar. Um, so um, with a steel mirror, um, to polish it, it's polished with steel wool. And what happens is over time it gets really scratched. Um, it still reflects well, but it's like looking through glasses that have been scratched also. So. Um, Elliot says, a friend of mine, um, a scientist, showed me this great experiment, which is hold a candle up to, um, up to such a mirror full of random scratches in the dark. And if you hold a candle up to it, um, what you'll see is a perfect halo in the mirror of the candlelight. The candlelight will be haloed in a perfect circle in the mirror. Um, and if you move the candle, the circle will move. Now, it's easy to see why this happens, which is that the candle is picking out. There are enough scratches there um, that, that those scratches will reflect the candlelight in a distorted way. And in the dark, it just picks out exactly the circle of where the light strikes it um, in an angle of incidence that then comes back in an angle of reflection to our eyes. But the point is randomness illuminated from a central point yields something that looks meaningful. And we could even say further that since meaning is in the mind, it yields something that is meaningful. Look, a circle. You want a circle? Here's how to produce a circle. Um, Eliot is thinking a little bit in, in terms of the same ideas that Darwin is. That is how randomness can produce meaning. Um, random variation can, under the right circumstances, um, produce something that has form and structure. But she's using that. She says these things are a parable. And what they're a parable for is how any perspective on a work, on a situation, on a psychology, any perspective on that can bring out something coherent out of all the richness of what's there. It can bring out a coherent structure one of many, one of a virtually infinite number of coherent structures, but a coherent structure that's really there. Eliot is very explicit in saying that that's what, that's what um, throwing, casting light on a situation by being a novelist is meant to do. Um, but it also means that that's, this happens um, in general if you take two things and um, um, juxtapose them there will always be arresting connections to make. And even if they're not naturally there, that is, they didn't really happen that way, the fact that the connections are there can lead to insight. Um, and that's an important thing to do. My, one of my roommates in graduate school was um, writing his dissertation on Dickens. And I picked up his copy of Little Dorrit. And he had read it obsessively. Um, and I was just paging through it, and he underlined practically everything. Um, but there was one phrase on one page which he hadn't underlined. So I pointed to it and I said, I can't believe you missed this. This is like the most important phrase in the book. And he got 
all thoughtful. And they said, my God, you're right. Um, and um, the point was, not only did I pick that phrase randomly, but in fact, I picked a phrase that was like of no importance whatever to the book as far as he or I could tell. But as soon as he thought about it, it started looking important. Um, so our capacity to improvise comes from the fact that we have all this background and all this foreground and all these ways of making connections that are random, but then in um, interacting with our minds can become meaningful, like the candle haloing itself in the mirror um, in Eliot. So I'm not explicitly saying that Frost is saying, oh, here's the intimation, so now I'm going to write my poem. Let's see, here's what Wordsworth says, so here's what I'm going to say. But I am saying that it's in the background, that among the many, many, many scratches on the mirror of Frost's um, experience of life is the intimation zone. And if the candle you then hold up to that mirror is the candle of the intimation zone, this metaphor isn't quite working, but if, if you hold up the candle of the intimation zone, um, what you will see are the connections that are there. The connections may go through a long circuit. It may be that Frost um, reads Coleridge's response to the intimations ode or reads Tennyson's response to Coleridge's response, and that's more on his mind. But <coughs> still, there's a connection. And so when um, we um, see that the ice storms bend the trees down um, somewhere, behind that is heavy as frost. And more likely than not, um, Frost is noticing the word frost in poems. Um, he would. So um, as I say, just zipping right through this, when I see birches bend to left and right across the lines of straighter, dark, straight darker trees, I like to think some boy's been swinging them. But swinging doesn't bend them down to stay, as ice storms do. Often, you must have seen them loaded with ice a sunny winter morning after a rain. They click upon themselves as the breeze rises. It's a great description, that sound of clicking ice in the sun. Um, they click upon themselves as the breeze rises and turn many colored as the stir cracks and crazes their enamel. Soon, the sun's warmth makes them shed crystal shells splattering and avalanching on the snow crust. Such heaps of broken glass to sweep away, you'd think the inner dome of heaven had fallen. They are dragged to the withered bracken by the load, and they seem not to break. Though once they are bowed so low for long, they never right themselves. So again, um, now, in fact, going quickly, another image of old age, once you are bowed for so long, you never right yourself. You never get back up. You may see their trunks arching in the woods years afterwards, trailing their leaves on the ground like girls on hands and knees that throw their hair before them over their heads to dry in the sun. Um, another image, as though he has gone, notice what's happening to the imagery here. It's a, a bit of a counterpoint to the meaning, um, like a two-part invention. Um, one hand is playing meaning, and the other hand is, is playing counterpoint to that meaning through imagery. And um, they, they intersect and, um, and diverge. They converge and diverge. So look at what the imagery is saying. 
the imagery is saying, I see these birches and I think of a boy. And the meaning, however, is no, the birches actually have been destroyed by an ice storm and they don't stand for youth, they stand for old age. Um, and they're withered. But then I see them in the woods arched and they look like girls drying their hair in the sun. So the imagery is an imagery of youth in counterpoint to the meaning, which is a meaning of old age. So do you see that? You, you see how the two hands are playing different things, and yet they're going together really well, at like, um, like a two-part invention of Bach's, like Bachian counterpoint. So, um, but I was going to say, second but, but I was going to say, when, the, when truth broke in with all her matter of fact about the ice storm, I should prefer to have some boy bend them as he went out and in to fetch the cows. So here he says, I see this image and I would prefer it to mean what I want it to mean rather than what truth makes it mean. Um, the birches are bent for good, but, and therefore the image can't be, it's like a metaphor, it's a false, it's false to say that some boy bent them because if a boy bent them, they wouldn't be bent for good. Nevertheless, I would prefer this false view of the image, a possible understanding of it, which is literally false, but nevertheless is what I prefer. I was going to say when truth broke in with all her matter of fact about the ice storm, I should prefer to have some boy bend them as he went out and in to fetch the cows. Some boy too far from town to learn um, I think we can learn something about how, how baseball was pronounced then, which is baseball. You have to, get, for the rhythm, you have to assume there was a different pronunciation of the name of the game in um, 1916. Um, some boy too far from town to learn baseball, whose only play was what he found himself summer or winter and could play alone. Um, that's what he would prefer, is that here's a boy who's lonely, um, an image of loneliness, um, who the only thing he could do um, was what he found himself summer or winter and could play alone. One by one he subdued his father's trees by riding them down over and over again until he took the stiffness out of them and not one but hung limp, not one was left for him to conquer. Um, so now, what's he trying to do? Why that idea of um, subduing all the trees? So remember, the, the, the issue is Frost sees bent birches. Truth says, boy, and says, um, I like to think a boy has done that. I would prefer, I'd l I like to think, come, turns into I prefer, which is a stronger version of like. Um, I like to think means it could be true. I prefer means even though it's not true, that's still what I'm going to say. Um, however, truth is saying, no, look, all these bent birches, a boy couldn't do that. What's Frost's answer to that? What if he swung on them a lot? Yeah, what if he swung on them a lot um, and swung over and over and over again? 
then maybe he would have bent all his father's birches. And that what you're seeing here is not the result of an ice storm, but a boy who has been swinging birches for a really long time until he subdued them all. Um, how long would that take? Sorry? A lot of time. Um, let us think of a three-letter syllable followed by the word hood that might um, indicate how long a time. That's, that's five letters, but yeah. Um, boyhood. Yeah, it could take his whole boyhood to swing all the birches. So now all the birches are bent, and his boyhood is over. Does that make sense, or is that overreading it? To say that it would take a long time, and that somehow this becomes another image for the end of childhood. He's trying to talk his way out of it, but he kind of talked himself into it. Yeah, exactly. Good. Like there's no, there's no real way to get around it logically. Yeah, yeah. It's still um, the the um, child still proves ephemeral, if I may invent a phrase on the spur of the moment. Um, okay. Um, anything else you want to say about that image? Here. Um, so some boy too far from town to learn baseball, whose only play was what he found himself summer or winter and could play alone. One by one he subdued his father's trees by riding them down over and over again until he took the stiffness out of them and not one but hung limp, not one was left for him to conquer. He learned, let's keep going, he learned all there was to learn about not launching out too soon and so not carrying the tree away clear to the ground. He always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully with the same pains you use to fill a cup up to the brim and even above the brim. Then he flung outward, feet first with a swish, kicking his way down through the air to the ground. So once, so was I once myself a swinger of birches. Can you really do this? Because it sounds awesome. Yeah, it is awesome. Um, I, I have done it. Um, but now all the birches are bent where I go. Oh, well. Um, yeah, this, this was the poor boy's bungee jumping. Um, anything else you want to say about those images? Muriel. I'm just intrigued by his use of subdued. Go on. Um, he's talking about his father's trees. And so I think it's important that it says his father. Mm -hmm. And I wonder why he would say subdued because... If it is a metaphor for childhood, then his father would already be subdued in the like frame of life, like bent like the trees. Good. And so I'm wondering about him launching off of the trees. Maybe like once he's done them all, then he has like launched himself into adulthood. Yeah, know. yeah. There's a great moment at the beginning of Gertrude Stein's *The Making of Americans*, where she tells, um, just does a very quick anecdote, and the anecdote is. A man is dragging his father through the woods. His father is resisting, but the man is dragging him by the legs through the woods and the thorns and the brambles. Um, and after a while, they get to a place, and his father simply calls out, Stop! This is as far as I dragged my father. So that's the whole little parable. Um, it's what children do to parents. Um, they replace them. As Keats puts it, the hungry generations tread us down. The new generation displaces the old and <coughs> has to win space for itself in order to do that. There's <coughs> always intergenerational conflicts. Um, they mess you up, your mom and dad. 
think I'm misquoting. Um, and um, eventually you become aware of that. And, um, that, and um, you get into conflict with them. But the conflict is what um, is the exercise, the um, process by which you grow up. Um, you get into conflicts with your parents, and that conflict um, matures you. And then you, rep and then that you you fight to have self determinate the self determination they do, and that matures you. And then you're in their position, and that's the cycle of intergenerational. That's an intergenerational cycle down the generations. Um, so subduing his father's trees, yeah, that has to be an image for something like growing up as also being something that. At some level, there's conflict there, um, even if it's only his father's trees. Um, do you want to be more um, vivid about how he uses that imagery? What words? So you picked up on um, on the darker trees. What words stand out here? Um, some boy too far from town to learn baseball, whose only play was what? He, well, I'm emphasizing, right? But that's okay. His only play was what he found himself, summer or winter, and could play alone. <coughs> one by one, he subdued his father's trees um, by riding them down over and over again until he took the stiffness out of them, and not one but hung limp. Not one was left for him to conquer. What words stand out? Limp and conquer. Okay, limp and conquer. What else? Anything else? Alone. Stiffness. Alone. Okay. Um, hold a candle up to those scratches. Stiffness, limp, alone, conquer, play alone. Yeah. Isn't this the sexual awakening? This yeah. Poem? Yeah. This. That's when I first read this poem. That was like what we. It was in high school. That's what we like explicitly focused on. That's okay. Yeah. So that's what you explicitly focus on. Yeah. yeah. Are you suggesting he, that these birch trees are a penis metaphor? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's what the poem is. I like it. Yeah. Um, yeah, that it's not that that um, on some level what's happening here, that very idea of intergenerational substitution is um, one way um, that, that uh, the young, I mean, think of this as the experienced nurse's song, or one version of the experienced nurse's song. Um, the father's stiff trees are being subdued and made to go limp. Um, because that's what the son is doing as the son himself matures into adulthood. So he plays alone. Um, that's on some level masturbation. Um, what he's learning is sexuality. He learns um, all there was to learn about not launching out too soon. Um, sexualize that and it's obvious what it is that he's learning. Um, and so not carrying the tree away, and so not carrying the tree away clear to the ground. He always kept his poise to the top branches, climbing carefully with the same veins you used to fill a cup up to the brim and even above the brim. Again, sexualize that, and it's um, not as vivid as stiffness and limpness, taking the stiffness out of his father's trees. Um, but it's there. It's a, it's, um, it's, it's, um, a good bodily um, image for learning um, what 
Milton will call, or has called, sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. That is, uh, not being too quick about it, not um, getting there too soon. Then he flung outward, feet first with a swish, kicking his way down through the air to the ground. So was I, once myself, a swinger of birches. Now, what I want to say is, we don't know the meaning of this. Here we have an example of the danger of metaphor, which is that it's really easy to say, oh, I get it, say no more, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Um, it's really all about sex. I don't think that's right. I think here sex is a metaphor. Sex is the vehicle and not the tenor. So it's not, oh, this really turns out to be about sex and the birches are his father's phallus, um, uh, uncannily reproduced because of the Oedipal conflict here, but eventually he succeeds in defeating his father. Um, I think that's the, that is the metaphor and not the meaning of the metaphor. That is the vehicle and not the tenor. Yeah. So when you get to the end, it kind of breaks from that. Yeah, exactly. So it's an image within a series of metaphors for growing older and for um, losing freshness and losing novelty and losing wonder and love for the world um, as all the things that are um, exciting and challenging start just being bent down and stooping into old age. So among those things is sexuality, but it's not so now we're in a position to understand Frost's poem. It is, an, it is a poem about Oedipal conflict um, no, he's using Oedipal conflict. Everyone knows what I mean by Oedipal conflict? Anyone not? Really? Okay. Um, he's using the idea of Oedipal conflict in order to talk about the passage of time. It's not, oh, what a psychoanalyst might make of this is to say, the reason people worry about the passage of time is that it's all Oedipal conflict. Um, and Frost would say, no, quite the reverse. The reason people worry about Oedipal conflict is that it brings home to them the passage of time. Um, the, uh, since this is a theory course, it's okay for me occasionally to quote theorists like Harold Bloom yesterday. Um, uh, Slavo Žižek, does anyone know who he is? Um, have you read anything by him? No, I watched um, his movies, Prairie's Guide to Cinema. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, he's also has an interview at the end of, um, oh, what's that Margaret Atwood-like movie in which no one has children? People stop having Children of Men. Children of Men, yeah. Um, he's, he's, the, he's the DVD commentator on that. Um, he starts a book by, with the following anecdote, which is that he, he gave a lecture um, at some place. He gives lectures like 35 times a week. Um, at some place, and then they took him out for Chinese food. And he said, um, and, and the host said, why don't we just order a bunch of dishes and share them? And he said, no, I never share food. And the host said, um, really, you're one of those people? And he said, yes, I am. And the host said, well, you know what Freud would say. He would say that um, what's really going on is that you don't like sharing sexual partners. And Zizek said, well, it's true that I don't like sharing sexual partners, but what I worry about is that if 
you share sexual partners with people with other people, um, eventually they'll think it's okay for them to share food with you too. Um, so again, it's the question: which is what's a symbol for what? Um, and we're used to saying everything is a symbol for sex, but I think it's much better to say, at least in this poem, that sex is a symbol rather for aging. It's not what the poem is really about. It's there, and, um, and Frost is even taunting you with the fact that it's there. Especially in 1916, when Freud was at his apogee, um, when everyone was talking about and thinking about Freud. Freudist, I can't make the pun. Frost, not Freud, um, taunts you with the Freudian interpretation. I mean, taunt is too strong a word. But the point is, he gives you that possibility, but says, yeah, but that's just a metaphor. That's not what this is about. Um, and if you want to think that, it's this, that this is what it's about, anyone in 1916 who's reading a poem about trees will think, ah, trees, it is all too clear what we have here. Um, so Frost says, no, I'm not repressing anything. You want to see these trees as phalluses? Go right ahead. That's part of the symbol. Um, they are symbolic phalluses rather than phallic symbols. Um, that's part of the point here. So now we've dispensed with that. That's not the meaning of the poem. Um, the meaning of the poem continues to be this relationship to the world and to life and to time. So was I once myself a swinger of birches, he says, and so I dream of going back to be. It's when I'm weary of considerations, and life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it, and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it, across it open. That's when he wants to be a swinger of birches. Life is like going through the woods now. So notice something really interesting is happening here, which is that the poem is a little bit like one of those M.C. Escher drawings of um, something flowing into itself or creating itself, um, or um, uh, you know, the two hands drawing each other is a famous one. Um, and what he's saying here is, I go by woods, and I like to think that some boy's been swinging them, and I miss the woods, because now what my life is like is like going through pathless woods. So he sees the woods and he misses them because life is like being in the woods. And there, there's a kind of or Mobius strip quality to the way the what looks like a counterpoint of imagery and meaning, um, which would be like two sides. Everyone knows what a Mobius strip is? Really, truly? No, OK. This is going to blow your mind. Anyone have a piece of paper? That I can rip. What is that? This is okay. So, if you take a piece of paper like this and you twist it, and then you tape, anyone have tape? No. Um, and then you tape the two ends together, what you have is a one sided strip. And the way you'll know that is if you draw a line all the way across here, you can have this. Um, just give it one twist. Tape it, when you're, tape it when you get back to your room. And if you draw a line anywhere and keep drawing until you get back to where you started, 
you will find that you've gone on both sides of the paper. And not only that, but do people know what will happen if you cut instead of drawing a line? You cut along the line, cut um, vertically or cut lengthways on the strip. Take links. You'll have a link. Um, you'll actually no, actually you'll have one long strip. There you are. Yeah. Oh. Um, which is also very peculiar. Oh. Yeah. So you'll cut it in two, and it'll still be one strip. Um, so that it's yay. She's drawing it. Good. Go for it. Um, it's it's a topological it's a it's a center of topological thought is the Mobius strip. Um, so um, there's a Mobius strip like quality to what look like two sides to this poem the meaning and the imagery um, where one is suddenly turning into the other. <coughs> Here are the woods walking through it. Life is too much like a pathless wood where your face burns and tickles with the cobwebs broken across it, and one eye is weeping from a twig's having lashed across it open. I'd like to get away from earth a while and then come back to it and begin over. Um, so you're walking through the woods. You want to get away from earth for a while and then come back to it and begin over. What's that image? How would he get away from earth for a while? How does he want to do that? He doesn't want to be misunderstood, he tells you in the next line. Yeah. Uh, I was going to say, like, just climb rock off the birch tree. <laughs> yeah. Or climb up the birch tree. Yeah. He, the next line says, may no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. So he's saying, don't think that when I say I want to get away from Earth for a while that I just want to go to heaven that I want to be snatched away from this world and go to some other world where things will be beautiful and lovely. Um, no, I want to get away from Earth a while, he says. But I do want to return. So getting away from Earth and returning, what's the image for that in the poem? Say it again. And then swinging back down. So. He no longer swings birches. He's gone from that time of life. That's very sad. What he would like to do then is return to the time in his life when he swung birches. And the image for a return of the time in your life when, you, when he swung on birches is what? The image of return is what? Growing up and then swinging back down. So he wants to swing, he wants to climb the birch of life and then swing back down to the ground, which in this image of what life is like, you get away from earth and you go up and up and up, but then you swing back down. Old age. Yeah, but you swing back down to the to youth, which was the time when you swung birches. So he wants to turn all of life into the image, or he wants an image for all of life to be the image of um, youth, or the thing that he used to do in youth. He wants to turn all of life into the very thing he's missing as he grows older. Yeah. Well, the problem is that the poem goes full circle. In the very beginning, the image of the trees bent down to the ground under the ice storm. Exactly. Is old age. Exactly. So somehow he's ended up equivocating old age and boyhood. It ends up all the same in his poem. Right. And, but that's a feature, not a bug. That's what he wants. Yeah. Um, but again, it would matter that the birches do spring back. 
and the problem with the original image is that they haven't sprung back. That's why he wants a boy to be swinging the birches and not an ice storm to be doing it. And he wants to be that boy. James Merrill has a great line in his poem, um, Days of 1935, where his parents are divorcing. We're going to see this soon. His parents are divorcing, and he's feeling miserable, and he imagines, if only I were kidnapped like the Lindbergh baby, um, they would worry about me, and the kidnappers would be really concerned about getting the ransom, so they would take care of me, um, unlike the Lindbergh baby, but um, they would take care of me, and um, I would get love from the kidnapper and his mall, um, and in the meantime, all the, all the press would be worried about me, and they would have my picture in the newspaper, um, and then he says, italics under which would say, and then he says parenthetically, and still do, now and then, I fear, close Beren, is this child alive today? Last hopes disappear. So, it, so the 10-year-old or 9-year-old Merrill is imagining um, that his picture will be in the newspaper with the italic caption, is this child alive today? Last hopes disappear. And what the 40-year-old Merrill is saying in 1965, or whenever he writes the poem, is, um, that's what I imagined. That question would be asked, is this child alive today? Last hopes disappear. And I'm afraid they're right. That child isn't alive today. That child is now a 40-year-old man, or has been replaced by a 40-year-old man. So he wants to be the child, but isn't. Frost who Merrill knew, is saying something similar. So, may no fate willfully misunderstand me and half grant what I wish and snatch me away not to return. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. An amazing affirmation of this life. Earth's the right place for love. I don't know where it's likely to go better. I'd like to go, very explicit here, by climbing a birch tree and climb black branches up a snow white trunk toward heaven. Not to heaven, but toward it. Till the tree, and think of Jack and the Beanstalk here also, it's all a return to childhood imagery. Till the tree could bear no more, but dipped its top and set me down again. That would be good both going and coming back. One could do worse than be a swinger of birches. So it's love of earth that you get here, even with all that's wrong with it, which is that we grow old and die, especially if we can use what we've learned about the best part of childhood, swinging birches, to use that as an image and a metaphor and an idea for how life works. The main thing to get here is that the poem is thinking something through. That is, he sees birches and he, want, he has a thought about them, but truth says, nah-uh, and then he has to think his way past what truth has told him about those birches. The poem is an act of thinking, not the record of a conclusion, not how things really are, but it does work. Writing the poem is a meditation that does work to get to a place where he can feel that he's achieved some solace against the unhandsomeness of our condition, to quote Emerson. Okay, have a good weekend. Remember, next week we're only meeting on Monday and Wednesday, and we will do the intimation. Let's see, that was fast, you guys. We will do the intimations of um, itself on Monday. We'll start talking about it.